The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. We're in Colossians chapter 3 today, starting at verse 12. We're going to read that as we go through it. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again to this wonderful book that speaks of Jesus. Lord, we know that an indispensable requirement for understanding your word is understanding our sin. For your word sheds light on our lives, reveals to us places which are out of accord with your will, shows us the way of salvation, and shows us the way of overcoming sin. If we come to your word thinking we don't need forgiveness, we might as well be looking at blank sheets of paper. But when we come by the grace of the Holy Spirit, realizing that we are sinners in need of forgiveness, then we open your word and find fountains of blessing. So make this book a blessing. Make us hearers and doers of the word. And as always, for this we need your grace. We ask for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're a parent, you'll probably understand this opening. Because there are times when you just wish you could trade places with your child because of the pain that they are going through. Now, if you know any of our family history, you would know that we're not strangers to the occasional broken bone. And particularly when you think of our younger sons, Dan and Sam, then you'll know that between them we've had broken feet, arms, hands, and face. I guess that's not going up today. Dan got broken on the soccer field. Sam got broken on the baseball field. And each time we had to deal with it. But there's not much you can do about the break right in that moment when it happens. In fact, when Dan got hurt, I had to ask the paramedic to move over a little so I could get a good picture of his arm. Which at that moment had sort of a Z shape to it. But hey, it was a good picture. And once I took Sam to a different emergency room, because I was being tired of uh, being recognized by the ER staff at our regular emergency room, you know, like, hey, you're back, what is it this time? Yeah, I had enough of that. But the really hard part is when you finally get there, you get to the emergency room and they, they get you to the back there and you know the shock is starting to wear off and the treatments uh, has to begin and you know that your kid is really, really hurting. And the doctor would meet us in the emergency room and go to work trying to reset this arm that was both broken and displaced. And our son's pretty tough, but it's obvious he was in excruciating, I think almost unbearable pain. And it's not a one-time deal. It hurts again in the middle of the healing process, pulling five inches of rolled gauze out of Sam's nostrils after plastic surgery. It hurts at the end of the healing process, pulling 27 inches of one continuous stitch out of Dan's arm. He's pretty sure he doesn't ever want to do that again. 
our sons will be the first to tell you how much a fracture in your body hurts. And that's a pain the Son of God understands all too well. Because he describes that all of us who belong to him as his body here on earth. And when there's a fracture in his body, he feels the pain. And that's why he makes it very clear how we're supposed to be treating each other in passages like ours today from Colossians 3. These are important verses because fractures in Christ's body hurt him and they hurt us. And we can avoid these painful breaks by living as it's described here in Colossians 3, treating each other gently, humbly putting the other person's interests first, patiently bearing with and choosing to overlook uh, slights and hassles and their shortcomings. And maybe you're in the middle uh, of a fracture in Christ's body right now. And if there's anything you can do to help repair that fracture, then do what it takes. It's hurting your Savior. It's hurting you. It's hurting the other people involved. And it's hurting the reputation of Jesus with anyone who knows about it. Someone has to have the Christ-like humility to say, this has been broken long enough. I'm not going to let my pride keep me from doing something about this any longer. And that sort of takes a grace that's counterintuitive for us, but is instinctive for Jesus. And it's called forgiving. And you can say, how can I forgive them after uh, the way they've treated me? And you probably can't. So you'll need to ask Jesus, the great forgiver, to pour his forgiveness into you. Then as we read here in Colossians 3, you can forgive as the Lord forgave you. You don't treat them the way they treated you. You treat them the way Jesus treated you, with unconditional love and forgiving grace. And you can start the healing of Christ's body with words like, I was wrong, I miss you, I forgive you. And when you take that healing initiative, you are loving your Jesus enough to help relieve the pain that this fracture is causing him. So what does it take to heal fractures in the body of Christ? Well, first and foremost, in order to bring healing, we have to understand the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. That should be the first blank uh, in your outline. Getting a little warm down here. We start with verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now this section completes Paul's exhortation to live a holy life. It continues the illustration of putting off and putting on garments. As uh, Pastor Tom laid out for us last week, he told the Colossians to put off the grave clothes of sin and the old life and to put on the grace clothes of holiness and new life. And the emphasis in this section is really on motives. Why should we put off the old deeds and put on the qualities of the new life? Paul gives us four motives that ought to encourage us to walk in a manner worthy of the faith that we profess. 
And it starts with the grace of Christ. Now, grace is God's undeserving uh, favor given to us sinners. And Paul reminds the Colossians of what God's grace has done for them. And the first thing he reminds them is that God, uh, and reminds us, is that God chose us. God chose us. Verse 12 tells us who we are before it tells us what to do. And the first thing we're told is we're God's chosen ones. The Bible, <coughs> excuse me, the Bible often describes believers, hang on a second, a little humidifier down here that helps. The Bible often describes believers as the elect, and that word elect means chosen of God. Now God's words to Israel given through Moses help us to understand the meaning of what it means to be God's chosen ones. We read in Deuteronomy 7, and again, this is uh, written to uh, the Israelites, but I think it applies to all people who are chosen by God. It was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, house, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we have right all the way back in Deuteronomy that God chose you. Now this miracle of election doesn't depend on anything we are or anything we have done. For God chose us in Christ, as we read in Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He writes much the same thing to the church in Thessalonica when he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but we ought always to give thanks to God uh, for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So if God saved a sinner on the basis of merit or works, nobody would be saved. It's all done through God's grace that it might bring glory to God. And that's our first motive for the Christian uh, life, that God chose us. The second motive is that God sets us apart. We're told again in verse 12 that we're holy, that we're set apart. That's the meaning of the word holy. Because we have trusted Christ, we've been set apart from the world for the Lord. We're not our own. We belong completely to Him. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. <clears throat> Just as a marriage ceremony sets apart a man and woman for each other exclusively, and I've often used this text uh, when I've done marriage uh, services, so salvation sets the believer apart exclusively for Jesus. I mean, wouldn't it be a horrible thing to get the end of a, uh, a wedding service and see the groom run off with the maid of honor? It's just as painful to Christ when the Christian decides to live for the world and for the flesh. God chose us. God set us apart. The third motive for the Christian life is that God loves us. It's simple, 
but it's true. Again, we're told, verse 12, that we are the beloved. God says that about you. If you are in Christ, then you are loved. In fact, God loved you before you were saved. We see that, Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, a demonstration of God's love. When you sin before you are a believer, you are a creature breaking the laws of a holy creator and judge. But when you sin as a Christian, you're a child of God breaking the heart of your father. Love is the strongest motivating power in the world. Parents don't want to change places with their kids when they're in pain unless they love them. And then they're willing to do that. And as a believer grows in his love for God, he'll grow in his desire to obey him, walk in the newness of life that he has in Christ. We read several times in Scripture, God's love compels us. God's love controls us. There are tons and tons of verses on what the, the benefits are that God's love brings to us. So God chose us. He set us apart. God loves us. And fourth is that God forgives us. God forgives us. Look at the end of verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you. God's forgiveness is complete and final. It's not conditional or partial. And how is a holy God able to forgive guilty sinners like us? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has forgiven us for Christ's sake, not for our own sake. And that's an incredible blessing. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Often we don't even want it. And yet God forgives us because he loves us, which is why he chose us and which is why he sent Christ. Romans 4 reminds us that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. So we're chosen by God, set apart by God, loved by God, forgiven by God. It all adds up to grace. And because of this grace and these gracious uh, blessings, the Christian then has some solemn responsibilities before God. He must put on the graces of the Christian life. And Paul names a number of character qualities that in the life of the believer demonstrate the heart of Christ. Again, going back to verse 12. That's the second blank, the heart of Christ. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what is the only appropriate response to God's grace? What is a heart that beats in rhythm with God's sound like? Well, first, it's a heart full of compassion. This means that we have hearts that have pity and mercy and sympathy and compassion for those who are orphaned, for those who feel rejected, for those who are unloved. And for those who uh, suffer, who are in desperate need of compassion because those who suffer usually suffer alone. And only with Christ's compassion can suffering make any sense at all. When we consider what Christ endured and how he suffered in our place, 
should cause our hearts to melt like wax for those who suffer here, who have a bitter cup to drink. First thing is it's a heart of compassion. Second, it's a heart of kindness. It's a heart that's full of kindness. Since God's kindness has led us to repentance, Romans 2, 4, we should be generous and giving to those who are ungrateful and sinful. God is kind towards us when we were ungrateful and sinful. And yet he forgave us through the greatest act of kindness by sending his son to die in our place. Third, it's a heart full of humility. Now here, the Apostle Paul is not suggesting this sort of cringing, groveling, abject submissiveness. Nor is he teaching people to think poorly of themselves. He's teaching the necessity of the absence of self-exaltation. He wants us to have nothing of the arrogant pride that Sir Winston Churchill evidently saw in his antagonist, Sir Stafford Cripps, when he remarked that Sir Stafford walked by, there, but for the grace of God, goes God. Churchill has great quotes. But how would it feel if somebody had said that about you? The person who wears the garment of humility knows who God is, who man is, and who he or she is. Now, humility was not looked at on as a virtue in Greek circles. And yet Christ comes in humility. His whole life speaks of humility. He emptied himself and left his robes and stepped down from his place of honor and came to us and sought us. He was humiliated by being mocked as king when he was the king. He was beaten by those he created. He was nailed upon a Roman cross for the whole world to see. And he saw this as the only way that our self-love and self-worship would be conquered. He chose what we would never choose for ourselves. And he gave what we could never earn through our own merits, his sovereign grace. When it comes to salvation, what do we have to brag about? We didn't do anything. It's all of Christ. So we need to be humble and admit it. You didn't do this. Jesus did. It's a heart of humility. And then it's a heart of meekness. It's a heart full of meekness. This is the attitude of the heart that's able to bear up under pain and fractures and persecution that's inflicted by another and yet doesn't respond in kind. It's a gentle person who knows he's a sinner among sinners and is willing to suffer the burdens of others' sins. It's a heart that doesn't need vengeance because it's already been altered by grace. God's grace invades the heart and causes it to be aware of what price Christ paid for our sin. And that frees us to respond with gentleness even when someone else is harsh. Meekness is defined as strength under control. It's not weakness. It's strength. And then we have a heart that's full of patience. An attitude of the heart that keeps its calm when everybody else is panicking, when everybody else is angry. Patience is the opposite of resentment and revenge. Were it not for God's patience, none of us would have been saved. And as with all the other uh, character qualities, it describes uh, Christ. 2 Peter 3 says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And then it's a heart willing to bear with one another. It's a heart changed by grace that can hold out, can endure uh, in spite of threats or pain. It's a heart that can bless when we're persecuted. And the pain of relationships, we know all too well that eventually we're going to hurt one another. And a heart that's able to bear with one another, even when sinned against, will profoundly affect a family, a community, a church. And we should have a heart that's so changed by God's grace that we're able to forgive one another. That's actually a big one. And that's actually a very hard one. Because our great and glorious God forgave us, our debt was wiped away in a moment of time through the work of another, our sin was placed upon Jesus, and he was treated as if he had lived our life, and his righteousness was placed upon us, and we are treated by the Father as if we had lived his life. And that causes our hearts to be willing to forgive one another, even when someone has a complaint, or is at fault, or there's error, or there's debt. He forgives our sins, forgives our errors and faults, forgives our debts, and we're called upon to take the same, <coughs> the same attitude of grace with each other. And then we read verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I was so tempted to ask, how's that perfect harmony working out? You know, this is sort of the belt that ties all the garments together. It's a love that only comes from God because God is love. He's the very definition of love. And love acts as the belt that pulls everything together. It's the most important moral quality uh, in our life because it's the glue that produces uh, unity in the church. We're not going to enjoy peace with one another or fellowship unless we love one another. And without love, we're pretty much just left with legalism and rules and rituals. But all our actions are supposed to flow from the love that God has given us, which is in turn a fruit of the Spirit. Nothing's acceptable to God if it isn't motivated by love, including our knowledge. Then God moves from, or then Paul, God speaking through Paul, moves from having these inner character qualities that reflect the heart of Christ to this outward living in such a way that our lives reflect the priorities of Christ. And this is actually a much bigger issue. Many churches today, mostly American churches, but uh, this affects every church everywhere, quite frankly, they're a mess. Theologically, they're indifferent, confused, or dangerously wrong. Liturgically, they're captives of the superficial fads of the day and of the culture. And morally, they leave li lead lives that are indistinguishable from the world. Often they have people, money, and activities. But they've de just degenerated into peculiar kinds of clubs. And what's gone wrong? What has caused this? At the heart of the mess is a simple phenomenon that churches have lost their love and confidence in the Word of God. They may still carry Bibles. They may still claim to be a Bible-believing church. They may have sermons based on Bible verses. And they may even have Bible study classes. 
But the Bible's not actually read or heard in their services. The scandal of the evangelical church is how many Bible-believing churches there are that never use the Bible. Increasingly, the Bible is treated as a, a source for poetic inspiration or pop psychology or self-help advice. And congregations where the Bible is ignored or abused are in the gravest peril. Churches that depart from the word will soon find that God has departed from them. And what solution does the Bible give us for this situation? Well, the short but profound answer is found here in these verses, uh, starting with verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want to focus in particularly on verse 16. We need the word to dwell in us richly so that we will know the truths that God thinks are most important and that we'll know his purposes and his priorities. And we need to be concerned less about uh, the needs that we feel and more about the real needs of lost sinners as presented to us in the scriptures. Paul not only calls us here to have the word dwell in us richly, but he shows what that looks like. He gives us, actually, three points. After all, Paul was a preacher. Well, first, he calls us to be educated by the word, which will lead us into uh, ever-increasing wisdom by teaching and admonishing one another. Paul is reminding us that the word must be taught and applied to us as part of its indwelling uh, richly in us. The church has to encourage and facilitate such thinking, whether it's in preaching or Bible studies or Sunday school or reading or conversation. We have to be growing uh, in the word. And it's not just information uh, that we're to be gathering. We have to be growing in the knowledge of the will of God for us as it's revealed in his word. We saw that back at the beginning of the book, Colossians 1.9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowing the will of God makes us wise. And in that wisdom will be renewed in the image of our creator, an image which has been damaged by sin. We also saw that last week we were told to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This wisdom will reorder our priorities and our purposes from that which is worldly to that which is heavenly. Again, as Paul has already told us, Colossians 1.5, the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And that, when that word dwells in you richly, we can be confident that we know the will of God. After all, Paul's told us that's his job. That's what he's trying to do. Colossians 1.25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. From the Bible, we know all that we need for salvation and godliness. Second thing, Paul calls us uh, to expressing the word from these renewed hearts, and he talks about music talks about our singing. 
Increasingly, Paul connects the word dwelling in us richly with singing. Some of you don't sing. I'll stand up. We're in the middle of uh, uh, the music set. And I'll look around. And some of you may be singing. Your mouths are not moving, however. And yet Paul is reminding us that singing is an invaluable means of placing the truth of God deep in our minds and hearts. The scriptures put a great value on singing God's words. I have known of elderly Christians who are long gone, far gone with Alzheimer's. They don't recognize people, they don't recognize family, but they can still sing praise to God. Singing connects the truth to our emotions. It helps us to experience the encouragement and the assurance of our faith. And we work hard, particularly Dave works hard, to make sure that the words of our songs are based on the scripture, that they have truth in that, whether they're old hymns or old hymns with new music or new hymns. Always check the words. Now, the importance of singing makes the content uh, vital. You know, one of the reasons we do that, we don't want to sing shallow or repetitive songs because then we're not hiding the word in our hearts. But if we sing the word... In richness and fullness, we're making ourselves rich in God's word. Don't take the music part of our service for granted. It's not the time to then do something else. It's really the time to focus on God and focus on his son and what he's doing in our midst. Third thing Paul calls us to remember the effect of the word to make us a people of thanksgiving. Three times here in this verse, Paul calls us to thankfulness. He says, when the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we'll be led to have lives of gratitude. So we contemplate all that God's done for us in creation and providence and redemption should lead us to thanksgiving. As we call his promises of forgiveness, renewal, preservation, glory... We should be thankful people. We need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly uh, more than ever. And churches can escape being a mess and become the body of Christ as God intended when we start thanking him for what he's done. What he's done for us as individuals, what he's done for us as a church. We need to know who we are by the grace of God. How to transform our lives to reflect the heart of Christ. How to respond to his love and his grace through living out the priorities of Christ and by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. But most people, even inside the church, aren't living for Christ. Because for the most part, they're still living for themselves. A great example of that comes from an old movie, a classic western called Shenandoah. Some of you may have seen it. I imagine a number of you haven't, but it stars Jimmy Stewart, the great uh, actor. And he stars as a man named Charlie Anderson, who's a Virginia farmer. It's hard to think that once Westerns were based in Virginia. 
But he's a Virginia farmer. He's lost his wife, and he's trying to keep his family out of the Civil War. That's the setting and the time period of the movie. And he's obviously in the Shenandoah Valley, and he has a farm. And so he gathers his children. He has a number of children. Gather them around the supper table, and there's an empty place there that's set for his wife, who's now died. And Charlie begins this litany they've obviously heard before. And he tells them, now your mother wanted you all raised as good Christians. I may not be able to do that job as well as she could, but I can do something about your manners. And so he tells them all to bow their heads. And here's his prayer. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it. We sowed it. We harvested it. uh, We cooked the harvest. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eaten if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Amen. And then through the course of the movie, one tragedy after another strikes the Anderson family. The youngest son is mistaken for a soldier and captured. Another son and his wife are murdered by a band of marauders coming through. A third son is shot by an overzealous sentry. And when we next see Charlie Anderson at the supper table, near the end of the movie, there are four more empty places as he begins his ritual prayer. And this time we hear his voice quiver and break as the awful realization comes upon him that he's not in control and he is not the master of his own destiny. And his voice trails off. He can't even finish the prayer when he gets to the words, if we hadn't done it all ourselves. And he stops and gets up. Without even finishing the prayer, he walks out. A proud man, broken and stripped of his pride, knowing He needs to turn to the Lord, but not yet ready to ask God for help. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says, most people spend their lives trying to make their heart's fondest dreams come true. After all, that's what we say life's all about, the pursuit of happiness. And we search endlessly for ways to acquire the things that we want and are willing to sacrifice so much to get them. And we never imagine that getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. If we look to some created thing to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and it will fracture our hearts. And if we look to ourselves for the meaning, hope, and happiness, the things that Paul talks about in these verses will never describe our lives. The only way to break free from the destructive influence of putting ourselves first is to actually put him first. The living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord that if you find him can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Take time to thank him for that. 
or take time to beg him for that. Take a moment to pray hard and then I'll close. Benediction today comes from the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ.